From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Sanj Kakar. And I'm Tracy McRae. September is Childhood Cancer Awareness Month. While survival rates for most childhood cancers have improved dramatically over the past quarter century, there is still work to be done. Probably one of the most striking advances has been immunotherapy in high-risk neuroblastoma. So we are exploring new agents, new chemotherapy drugs, but also new approaches such as immunotherapies. We'll discuss the importance of funding, research, and clinical trials for pediatric cancers with a Mayo Clinic expert. Also on the program, September 2016 is the first ever Rheumatic Disease Awareness Month. We'll learn more about rheumatic diseases from a Mayo Clinic rheumatologist. And how medical marijuana can be used to treat pain and other disease symptoms. All that, along with this week's health and medical news, right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Sanj Kakar. And I'm Tracy McRae. A cancer diagnosis is upsetting at any age, but especially so when the patient is a child. According to the National Institutes of Health, it's been estimated that over 15,000 new cases of cancer will be diagnosed among children in the United States this year. Worldwide, that's more than 250,000 children will be diagnosed with a pediatric cancer. That's almost 700 kids each day. Man, that's a big number. Although pediatric cancer deaths have declined by nearly 70% over the past four decades, cancer remains the leading cause of death from disease among children. September is Childhood Cancer Awareness Month, and here to discuss the topic is Dr. Carola Arndt. Dr. Arndt is a pediatric hematologist-oncologist and the principal investigator for Children's Oncology Group at Mayo Clinic. Welcome to the program, Dr. Arndt. It's nice to meet you. Thank you. Good to be here. It's just the most terrible topic, the saddest thing, children getting cancer. And luckily, the rates seem to be declining, or are they accelerating? Well, the rates are probably approximately the same as they've been. We do have, as part of the Children's Oncology Group research, something called a Childhood Cancer Research Network, which is an attempt by the cooperative group, the Children's Oncology Group, to get information and create a database of every child under age 21 diagnosed with cancer in the United States to be able to determine just that, whether in fact the incidence of cancer is increasing or decreasing. You'll you'll hear sometimes that someone was diagnosed with a childhood cancer, (coughs) even if they're an adult. Are there specific cancers that are indeed just childhood cancers? Or are there Can adults be diagnosed with those types of cancers, or what makes it a childhood cancer, I guess? So certain kinds of childhood cancer are, or certain types of cancer in children are most commonly seen in children, but can indeed be seen in adults. For example, neuroblastoma is typically thought of as a childhood cancer. However, adults can get neuroblastoma. It's much, much rarer in adults, but they can get it. Similarly, There are certain tumors, in particular bone tumors, (coughs) like osteosarcoma or Ewing sarcoma, which are commonly seen in teenagers and young adults, but they can also happen when they're in their 20s or 30s. So Dr. Arndt, as a a parent of young children, cancer is the last thing I'm ever thinking about when I I see my kids. But parents out there, what, what are the sort of typical signs and symptoms that should alert them at the back of their mind that something untoward may be going on? Well, there's no one particular sign or symptom that should 
bring up the diagnosis or a thought of cancer. In contrast to adult cancers that, for example, appear in the breast or colon or prostate, childhood cancer, even certain kinds of cancer, can appear in lots of different areas in the body. Uh, the most common form of childhood cancer is leukemia, and leukemia often presents as resi- uh, persistent fevers or pallor or bruising or swollen lymph nodes, but sort of vague, nonspecific symptoms, and that's not the first thing a pediatrician thinks about when a pediatrician sees a child with fever. But unexplained fever, unexplained joint pains make you think about, that last for a while, make you think about something more serious, such as cancer. For bone tumors, and my area of interest and expertise is bone tumors and sarcomas, And a lot of times these are considered to be so-called sports tumors because teenagers are often very active in sports and it's perfectly normal for a normal child to have an injury or a sprain or a strain. And I would say that if pain from a strain or a strain doesn't go away with conservative management after a couple of weeks, then you need to start thinking about more sinister and serious causes such as cancer. So I would say unexplained symptoms um, or, for example, weight loss, fevers, night sweats, lumps, bumps, those kinds of things. Is there... Because there are so many different types of cancer that there can be from top to bottom, I guess, you know, when it comes to children with kidney cancer, you know, whatever, bone uh, sarcomas, like you mentioned, is there a certain cause of cancer in children? Is it more likely to be a genetic issue? So most of the time, there's really no explanation as to why a child gets cancer. It's just one of those freak, random things, and I often... When I meet a family, one of the first things I make sure that they understand is that there's nothing they did or didn't do that caused their child's cancer, which I think is very important. In terms of genetic causes, there there is a particular syndrome called Lee-Fromini syndrome, which is a familial cancer syndrome, which the classic syndrome is cancer diagnosed in two first-degree relatives, prior to the age of 45. In those typical cancers, the typical sort of classic case is a child with rhabdomyosarcoma whose mother might have had breast cancer diagnosed at a very very early age or osteosarcoma and breast cancer. So there are families that do have a predisposition to get cancer. There are certain cancers that do show up, as I mentioned, osteosarcoma, rhabdomyosarcoma, breast cancer. There are also other more rare kinds of syndromes that can predispose to childhood cancer. But most childhood cancer is not considered to be genetic. Now, given the advances that we read about every day in in cancer, are there any new um, treatments on the horizon that you can talk to us about? Well, that's such a broad question. Um, Certainly, immunotherapy is a hot topic. Um, CAR T-cells for refractory leukemia are things that are being investigated. Probably one of the most striking advances that have been made has been immunotherapy in high-risk neuroblastoma. Uh, So we are exploring new agents, new chemotherapy drugs, but also new approaches such as immunotherapies. Why is it that children get neuroblastoma more than adults? Probably because neuroblastoma is considered to be one of those tumors that one could call an embryonal tumor, 
which <coughs> excuse me arises from so-called embryonal rests in the body that are there at the time of birth and something just goes awry. And the immunology is uh, something on the horizon, a bright spot on the horizon mm-hmm. for children with neuroblastoma, correct? Explain a little bit more. So one of the recent studies that actually led to approval of a drug that was specifically developed for treatment of children with neuroblastoma, there's a drug called dinatuximab, which is an antibody specifically directed against the neuroblastoma cells when given in conjunction with other drugs that stimulate the immune system. We did a randomized trial in the children's oncology group, which demonstrated that those patients treated with very aggressive therapy plus immune therapy, specifically including the denatuximab, had a significantly improved survival rate, an event-free survival rate, and better outcome than patients that did not receive the denatuximab. So that's very, very exciting, and that led to approval of that drug by the FDA this year. We've been talking about childhood cancers with pediatric oncologist Dr. Carola Arndt. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, myth or fact? Since 1980, only three drugs have been developed specifically for pediatric cancers. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Sanj Kakar. And I'm Tracy McRae. We're back talking about Childhood Cancer Awareness Month with pediatric oncologist Dr. Carola Arndt. So Dr. Arndt, myth or matter of fact, since 1980, only three drugs have been developed specifically for pediatric cancers. That's not very many. Is that a myth or is that a fact? That's actually a fact. Wow. There, the three drugs <clears throat> have been the denatuximab that I mentioned previously, which is the antibody to treat uh, neuroblastoma. Clotharabine, which was specifically developed for treatment of recurrent childhood lymphoblastic leukemia, and erwinase, uh, which is a form of asparaginase used to treat children with leukemia, specifically who are allergic to the standard form, which is E. coli asparaginase. It doesn't seem like that's that that's not a lot of advances in ni- since 1980. Why such a shortage of it, or is it a shortage? Well, the problem is that, as we've mentioned earlier, childhood cancer is relatively rare compared to cancer in adults, and so it's really not on the priority of industry to develop drugs specifically for the indication of pediatric cancers. Most drugs that we use in pediatric oncology are not specifically FDA-approved for treatment of a particular childhood cancer. They get approved for adult cancers first, and then we use them to treat childhood cancers. So we certainly have drugs. They were not developed specifically for childhood cancer like the three drugs that we mentioned. Now, the the good part is that Congress passed a law a number of years ago called the Best Pharmaceuticals for Children Act, which was an act that allows drug companies to have six months additional of exclusivity before the drug goes to market and is the, the patent is 
expiring and allowed to be marketed by other drug companies if they do studies in children. And so that was that was something that was a glimmer of hope in drug development for children that if the industry or drug company decides or agrees to develop the drug for children or look for a childhood indication, they get an additional six months of exclusivity. So given these medications, are they freely available or are they best uh, administered in, for example, cancer centers in the country? So it's important, it's in the best interest of the child, I think, for them to be treated at a cancer center or at a place that has access to randomized clinical trials, which is really what have significantly improved the outcome of pediatric cancers over the years. And to be a center that's a member of a cooperative group or has a cancer center and pediatric oncologists with expertise in treating children with cancer, you also have to have the multidisciplinary team available, which includes not only pediatric oncologists, but pediatric surgeons, pediatric urologists, child life, um, specialized orthopedic surgeons with expertise in treating cancer, and the whole gamut of subspecialty care and subspecialty providers that are able to deliver the highly specialized care that these children need. I would have to think, though, that for children uh, as, a, as a group of patients, whether it's chemotherapy or radiation or immunotherapy, the lasting effects of some of that treatment might be more detrimental to children than to an adult. Is that true or not? Yes, that's very true. In fact, when you treat a five-year-old and we treat, obviously, with the intent to cure, that child will hopefully have 70 years, 80 years of life ahead of them, as opposed to treating a 75-year-old who may only have 5 or 10 or 15 years. So we're very cognizant of the long-term effects, which sometimes can be substantial in these children. In fact, there are currently approximately 375,000 adult survivors of childhood cancer in the United States. And it's been estimated that somewhere between 1 in 530 adults aged 20 to 39 are survivors of childhood cancer. So it's not unusual for an internal medicine physician or a family practice doctor to see an adult survivor of childhood cancer in their practice. Then they need to be prepared to know what kinds of long-term side effects these patients are potentially susceptible to developing. For example... One of the most active drugs that we use is a drug called adriamycin, which belongs to the class of drugs called anthracyclines, which can cause significant effects on the heart down the road. Certainly some of the treatments we use can cause impaired fertility. Some of them can cause neurocognitive effect or skeletal effects or even propose or even uh, predispose to other malignancies. So these are things that we try to make the patients aware of and monitor for, and both the patients and the physicians caring for them need to be aware of the significant potential for long-term effects. You're the principal investigator for the Children's Oncology Group. I didn't even know about this group until we booked you as a guest. So tell me a little bit about that group. What do you do? So the Children's Oncology Group is a cooperative group 
which seeks to improve the cure rate and lessen the long-term side effects, as well as understand the causes of and develop better treatment modalities and um, basically do everything surrounding improving the cure rate for children with cancer. The Children's Oncology Group is a group of approximately, gosh, it's over 200 institutions, both in the United States, and we have some uh, members of the COG in other countries, Australia, New Zealand, um, other other countries in the world also, but mainly in the United States and Canada. We have randomized trials. We have phase two and phase one um, experimental treatment, drug treatment trials. We have epidemiology trials. Those are trials looking at the causes of childhood cancer. Um, And it's just very exciting, the advances that have been made through cooperative group trials in curing so many children with cancer. So given this collaboration, has that helped in generating funding for these uh, trials? So it funding is always an issue. There's never enough funding is the bottom line. Is there ways that children or the parents of these children can get the kids involved in clinical trials if they're at a hospital where that's not an option? Should they travel or should they ask their physicians, can we do this here? How does that work? So in order to be involved in a clinical trial, the patient does need to be seen and treated at an institution where that clinical trial is, in fact, open and available. And is the funding for pediatric cancer research hopefully growing? Is that growing as well? Well, unfortunately, the funding has been flat for a number of years now. And obviously, we're trying to get philanthropic organizations, and at the risk of omitting a few, (laughs) I won't mention any, but there are certainly excellent philanthropic organizations, but the money is certainly never enough, and the funding has been unfortunately flat. And that's the reason why you have Childhood Cancer Awareness Month, so we can talk about that. We've been talking about the importance of research and clinical trials in fighting childhood cancer with pediatric hematologist and oncologist Dr. Carolla. Art. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Art. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, it's the first ever Rheumatic Disease Awareness Month. We'll learn more from a Mayo Clinic expert. And later on the program, we'll discuss the use of medical marijuana for treating disease symptoms and pain. Do you have a health-related question you'd like us to answer or a topic you'd like us to cover? You can tweet us anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio or send us an email at mayoclinicradio at mayo.edu. Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams with your Mayo Clinic Minute. Stroke is a medical emergency for everyone. Unfortunately, some women may experience a delay in care because they don't recognize that their symptoms are being caused by a stroke. Mayo Clinic wants you to know the signs and symptoms of stroke because prompt treatment can increase your chance of recovery. Risk factors for women are essentially the same as they are for men. But there are differences, particularly for pregnant women and women on the pill, because they have an increased risk of stroke. 
Sometimes, particularly in younger women, the stroke symptoms are not recognized as quickly as we would hope that they would be. Mayo Clinic neurologist Dr. Maisha Robinson says prompt treatment of symptoms improves your chances of recovery. Now, symptoms include difficulty talking, walking or thinking, sudden vision changes, sudden severe headache or numbness or paralysis. If symptoms happen, call 911 no matter how old you are. And to prevent stroke, manage health issues that increase your risk. High blood pressure, high cholesterol, diabetes and excess weight and inactivity. And if you smoke, stop. And in other news, let's talk about a topic that's tough to discuss. Suicide. A history of a suicide attempt is one of the strongest predictors of actually going through with it. But a Mayo Clinic study finds it is even more lethal than previously known. Researchers find that suicide risk was nearly 60% higher than previously reported. The researchers say they hope to address the shortcomings of earlier studies by including two groups previously overlooked by other studies, those who survived an initial attempt and those who died on their first attempt. Since suicide is one of the 10 most common causes of death in the U.S., it is a major public health concern. Mayo experts want to help develop ways to prevent suicide. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Tracy McRae. September 2016 marks the first ever Rheumatic Disease Awareness Month. Rheumatic diseases are the nation's leading cause of disability, affecting nearly one in four Americans. More than 52 million Americans live with painful, debilitating, and life-threatening rheumatic diseases, including rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, gout, and juvenile idiopathic arthritis. Although there is no cure for rheumatic disease, early intervention can help patients manage symptoms and maintain a normal quality of life. Here to discuss these rheumatic diseases is Mayo Clinic rheumatologist Dr. Eric Madison. Welcome to the program, Dr. Madison. Thank you very much. Having the first ever, that's kind of a surprise to me, the first ever Rheumatic Disease Awareness Month. Well, it's true. It is a little bit surprising considering how pervasive these diseases are. You quoted the figures of over 50 million people in the United States with some type of arthritis. Many of those patients have rheumatic diseases, which are autoimmune in nature, meaning the body attacks itself, causing arthritis and related problems. A huge percentage of people, though, also have osteoarthritis or wear and tear arthritis, degenerative arthritis, which is something that as our population gets older, we are destined to have more difficulty with. Arthritis is actually one of the leading causes of disability in the United States. It's actually the second leading reason for early discharge from the military. So Mm. even in our armed forces, it's a problem. And the Arthritis Awareness Month is something that's new. This is actually an international initiative Hmm. that we're participating in. And the reason that we're doing that is because they're just, despite the fact that there's so much arthritis in our society, there's not a whole lot of awareness about what the impact of the arthritis is on people's life expectancy on their ability to work, their ability to go to school, and as I mentioned, even on critical functions like our military. So the reason why it's beneficial to have this recognized this month is that rheumatoid arthritis is different from what the regular wear and tear arthritis is, and people lump them all together. That's right. There are more than 100 forms of arthritis, actually, and A certain number of them, like rheumatoid arthritis, are autoimmune in nature. That means that the immune system attacks 
a certain area of the body, in this case, the joints, but in other forms of autoimmune rheumatic diseases like lupus, it could be other organs like the kidneys or the heart or the lungs or the eyes or blood vessels. Or for gout. Or for gout. Yes, exactly. Is your hands too or just your feet for gout? So gout is a condition that's caused by a buildup of uric acid. And uric acid is a salt that actually crystallizes in the joints. It likes to crystallize in the big toe, Mm -hmm. but it can crystallize anywhere. It can crystallize in the knee and the hands. And we've even had patients here who have had these gout crystals form on their heart valves. Oh, my goodness. That, that, That can't be usual, though. No, that's very uncommon. But the condition of having excess amounts of uric acid actually predisposes people to having heart disease. And so this is another aspect of these rheumatic diseases that is not really well appreciated, their association with cardiovascular diseases and the complications of cardiovascular diseases. It's not just uric acid, it's not just gout, but also patients who have diseases like rheumatoid arthritis or lupus are at at least double the risk for heart disease. And so recognizing and controlling the arthritis is very important. And recognizing the heart disease is also extremely important. So why an awareness month? Well, to actually make people aware of these different forms of arthritis and to make people aware that there is effective treatment for very many of these forms of arthritis. And uh, the other reason is also that we want to have a general public awareness, but we'd like to have awareness also of our insurers, of our legislators, because we know that the only way that we're really going to be able to solve the arthritis problems is through research, research through the NIH, research through the Department of Defense, and also through adequate availability of drugs that are effective in treating arthritis. If you're going from gout and lupus all the way to, you know, rheumatoid arthritis, that's pretty much anybody in that brand can be affected. That is absolutely right. Arthritis can affect even infants, toddlers from the ages of one or two for juvenile inflammatory arthritis, a form of or similar to rheumatoid arthritis, all the way through the aged I've had one patient actually here who developed rheumatoid arthritis at the age of 100, so it can occur over a very large spectrum of disease. And when you think about the fact that um, that uh, over 50 million people in America have arthritis, and then if you even narrow it down to these autoimmune diseases and look at what the risk is of developing some type of inflammatory rheumatic disease, it turns out that from research that we've done here at Mayo Clinic, one woman in 12 will develop some type of autoimmune disease during the course of her lifetime, and one man in 20 will develop some type of disease during the course of his lifetime. So very frequent diseases. And what does the future hold? I mean, you said if we can get some awareness of it, research must be making the future a little bit brighter, hopefully. It is making the future brighter. And what we have seen is that in patients who have autoimmune diseases, in particular, we have made quite great strides in understanding how to calm down the immune system, the fire, basically, that is causing 
a burning, if you will, mm-hmm. of the joints and damage to the joints and other organs. And so over the past 30 years, and especially in the past decade or so, there have been developed a number of drugs which are very effective in squashing the fire, in calming it down, and in leading to preservation of of joints and other organs who could, which could be involved by the arthritis. We have a long ways to go still, and we certainly have a long ways to go to manage the biology of wear and tear arthritis, the arthritis that we get when we get older. That's a problem that we haven't conquered. We Yes, we can do joint replacements, but nobody wants a joint replacement. What we really would like is a new biological joint, something that can regenerate the cartilage, something that can regenerate the bone. So this is a major thrust here at Mayo and and other institutions as well, that we are creating research programs and pursuing research programs to uh, restore the affected joints. And that's really where I think the future is in the management of joint disease. Excellent. Dr. Eric Madison, Mayo Clinic Rheumatologist, thank you so much for joining us to, uh, to discuss Rheumatic Disease Awareness Month. Thank you very much for having me. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll hear how medical marijuana is being used to treat pain and other disease symptoms. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Medical marijuana is marijuana that is used to treat pain, nausea, and other side effects of some treatments, as well as some disease symptoms. Medical marijuana is legal now in over half the states and in Washington, D.C. Each state has legalized or that has legalized marijuana for medical use, regulates who may use it, and how the product is distributed within its borders. Recently, there's been a discussion about whether medical marijuana could be the answer to the opioid epidemic in this country. Senator Elizabeth Warren has asked the Centers for Disease Control to explore the use of medical marijuana as an alternative to the powerful opioid painkillers that result in thousands of overdose deaths each year. So no more oxycodone. We're going with uh, marijuana. We'll find out. Well, here to discuss the use of medical marijuana is internal medicine specialist and addiction specialist, Dr. John Ebert, welcome back to the program, Dr. Ebert. Good to have you. Pleasure to be here again. So I, I have always been under the assumption that uh, if this many states, half the states in America, have legalized marijuana, that everybody, including the medical profession, must think it's safe. So that's a really great question. Um, I, I, I think that we do need to sort of separate the issue. Um, some of some of what we're hearing and some of the rhetoric we're hearing is is really about uh, recreational use too. And so I want to be very clear about what we are talking about. What you've said. Yeah, Colorado is so different than Minnesota's situation. Right. So if you look at the four states that have legalized it for recreational use, you know, Washington, Oregon, Alaska, and Colorado. Um, very different issue. So we're really focused, as, as you mentioned, Tom, on, on, on that um, the medical marijuana piece that half the states in Washington, D.C. have approved of. So once, once you get beyond that, then you really need to talk about what exactly is the drug we're talking about. We mentioned med- medical marijuana, but we're really talking about really two genus um, um, or species of cannabis, and one is cannabis sativa and one is cannabis indica, and those are the two main strains. When we talk about marijuana, it's complex because there's over 400 chemicals in, mer- in, in medical cannabis. 
and 70 of them are cannabinoids. Most medications that we prescribe in medical practice have no more than two medications, if you think about a combination mm. blood pressure medication, for example. Um, but these have over 70 cannabinoids in them, and all of them, and th- there are different cannabinoids, and they have different effects. So you're saying that medical marijuana is different than recreational marijuana? Yeah, So and, and it's really important to have that clear distinction because the the rhetoric does sort of get confused and i think that when you look at the the way that certain physicians are actually interested mm-hmm. in engaging in a conversation about the use of marijuana as an alternative uh, for pain control they're not endorsing marijuana to be used recreationally. It's for a very specific patient for a very specific problem. So if someone is going to use uh, marijuana for medical purposes, do they need a prescription to, to get it? The way that we've set a lot of the states up um, is that because it's illegal under federal law, it's a Schedule One medication, so it is illegal to to give or recommend that drug for use in a patient. The way that they've set it up in Minnesota, for example, is physicians who are interested in having their patients explore medical cannabis for a therapeutic indication, they don't prescribe it. The physicians don't prescribe it. They certify a qualifying condition. And in Minnesota, those certification, those qualifying conditions are things like HIV, cancer, uh, terminal illness, and now as of July 1st, chronic pain. Do you think that's enforced, though? I bet that I could walk into one of these places where they sell medical marijuana and get it, even without your... Yeah. We have one in town, and you yeah. can you can test the theory um, directly. But when you go there, and I've had patients who have gone there and told me the story. Uh, they go there, they sit down with the pharmacist, and they have a pharmacist oh, that okay. actually well, works in there. And it's, in the program in Minnesota, they have to have clearance and approval, and they have to be certified, and there is a, a fee that they have to pay in order to participate. I think I'll try it in California okay. before I try it here. <laughs> How safe is it compared to med- to uh, o- this opioid crisis that we're having. So if you look at the number of patients that died last year um, from opioids, 28,000, and then then you hear the statistics of of the number of patients that have died from medical marijuana, um, zero. So, um, but, you know, you need to look harder at those numbers, too. I think it's a little bit um, challenging to to get information about illicit drugs. I mean, uh, opioids, at least the non-illicit types or the, the ones that are not on street drugs, uh, those actually have, you know, they're, they're prescribed by physicians. They're easier to track. It's much, it's much more challenging to get statistics and important vital statistics about um, drugs that are illegal because patients may not be forthcoming or, or users might not be forthcoming about their use. Since this is so new, the use of medical marijuana um, for diseases or whatever, tell us about someone that uh, you have prescribed it for or you know has used it on your recommendation. We have seen a patient in our practice, 43-year-old female with chronic pain. Um, And this is a patient who has been um, to every specialist that you can imagine, uh, has been turned down for surgery, and has been on these opioid agreements uh, or contracts where they, they... essentially what they do is they agree to certain behaviors that they will engage in so that you can continue to fill the opioids. It's being managed. Yeah, it's being managed. That's exactly right. And uh, the problem is that 
patients are sometimes fall off these contracts because they um, are having their pain inadequately controlled or they're they're you know they're squirreling away pills and so this this person had been dropped from contracts so really coming into an office in a primary care setting chronic pain what do i do where do i turn um, that would be a patient who uh, a, a clinician might consider for this, and you would certify that pain, ba- or you certify that patient based upon their history, and say this patient has uh, or meets criteria for a certifying condition under Minnesota state law. And um, and so that person, you can certify that condition, and then that patient can show up in our dispensary. And they can sit down with a pharmacist, describe the type of pain, uh, uh, the condition that they have, lower back pain, and, and, and that pharmacist will make recommendations about the different products. You can go online and look at the different products. One of the interesting things about the products is that there are two different cannabinoids that seem to have most of the pharmacologic effect. One is um, THC or tetrahydrocannabinol, which everybody is used to. That's the one that causes the high. Um, And then there's cannabidiol or CBD. And that one probably has the most therapeutic benefit for pain. And so this pharmacist can say, oh, you're having pain. I'm going to select a product that has more CBD and less THC or all CBD and no THC because now they are breeding strains of cannabis that have high levels of CBD. And so that patient would leave that experience having uh, a product that they can use at home. And now how are they used? Uh, Medical cannabis can be taken orally as a spray. It can be taken as a pill. It can be used as a patch. It can be sprayed under the tongue, and then it can be vaporized. And, of course, it traditionally can be smoked, um, but I think a lot of clinicians who are considering this for pain management strategies are not having patients smoke it because it's very high in tar. And so did it work for your patient? It did not. This is really emblematic of the problem that we're having because we don't have good research. We don't know what the doses are. And the story was that they couldn't afford the amount of money that it would take to get to that pain control that they needed. And the pills were very expensive, and the vaporizer didn't work very well. And so all of these things sort of um, made me think, boy, you know, we have a long way to go in terms of research, and trying to get through all of these, you know, these regulatory hurdles are going to be critical for us to advance the science. Because really what I'm asking for is we need to advance the science so we can do this better. One final question. Can you get addicted to marijuana, whether you're you're using it for medical purposes or otherwise? Great question. And I... when you look at the data, there about 10% of chronic users have some form of dependence, and the dependence we typically define as um, having withdrawal from it when you stop it. And you see about 9 to 10% of chronic users actually having a dependence on it. All right, all about medical marijuana from someone who knows, internist and addiction specialist, Dr. John Ebert. Good to have you back. Thanks. And that's our program for this week. Find more information on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Tweet your health and medicine questions to hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our writer and social media editor for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us.
Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.